Hello, I'm Tracy Picard. Welcome to Stories from the Hub, a podcast by the Social Enterprise Greenhouse in Providence, Rhode Island. Today, I'm talking to Andy Posner, the founder and CEO of Capital Good Fund, an SEG community member and a past accelerator participant. My name is Andy Posner. I'm the founder and CEO of Capital Good Fund. What is the Capital Good Fund? So we are pretty unique. We are a 501c3 tax-exempt nonprofit, like any other nonprofit. Uh, but we're also a U.S. Treasury certified community development financial institution, or CDFI. Uh, there are about 500 CDFIs around the country. So we do everything from small business lending to affordable housing, community facility financing, and in our case, small dollar personal loans. And we're pretty much the only one that does this. We are an alternative to what is a $140 billion plus industry of small dollar personal lenders that are predatory. And so this is everything from payday lenders who do three to $500 loans at 260% interest rate to auto title and buy here, pay here, auto lenders and everything in between. So can we explain what predatory lending means? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple different ways you can define it. Typically, uh, in the United States, charging over 36% on certain small loans is considered predatory. Uh, but more broadly, for us, we define it as a win-lose proposition. So for a payday lender, for instance, you borrow $300 and it comes due in uh, two weeks. So in theory, you pay $300 today and you, you borrow $300 today and you pay $330 in two weeks, not very expensive. And actually, if you paid it off in two weeks like that, the payday lender would lose money. They depend on the fact that 90% of people can't afford to pay off the loan in two weeks. And so what they do is they make a new loan to pay off the previous one, but now this new loan includes the original principal plus the accrued interest. Mm -hmm. And the average person does this eight times. So a $300 loan can cost you six, seven, $800. And so again, that's a win-lose proposition where the payday lender or the auto title lender only makes money when you get stuck in a cycle of debt. With us, if you can afford the loan, you pay it off as agreed, we make money. If you fall behind, we don't. And do you have like an actual location or is this an online program? Payday lenders have more branches, physical branches, mm-hmm. than there are Starbucks in the country. Oh. That's one of the reasons why they charge such high rates, because that is a very expensive overhead model. Right. We can't afford to do that as a nonprofit with much lower rates. So we are primarily online. Mm -hmm. We lend throughout Rhode Island, Delaware, and Florida. We have 23 people in our Providence office, two in Florida and none in Delaware. But even in Rhode Island, the vast majority, over 90% of our loans are done electronically. So you can go from inquiry through to closing and servicing all on a basic smartphone. Our model would never work if we had to pay for branches in all the communities in which we operate. Right. Are you targeting a particular community? A majority of our clients are minority, and Latinos are the largest percentage of that. However, ultimately we're serving people who are low income and have no report credit. We do focus a lot on immigrants because we have a loan specifically for immigration expenses, like the cost of applying for citizenship or a green card. 
That's one of the reasons why we expanded to Florida because it has such a large uh, yeah. Latino market. And, and then about 55 to 60% of our clients are women. Does it seem as if women are more easily victimized by predatorial lending? The data will bear that out a little bit, uh, but that's more not because they're women specifically, but because women earn less than men. Right, exactly. And a woman who's low income, more likely to be a single head of household, right. are more likely to be in the position to need a paid loan. I see. What is it that brought you to this job and this mission? So I moved to Providence, Rhode Island in 2007 for uh, grad school at Brown University okay. for environmental studies. Hmm. I got interested in financing mechanisms for clean energy. And so this was around 2008, and then two things happened. One is that the financial system collapsed. Right. And the other is that I learned about Muhammad Yunus and microfinance. Muhammad mm -hmm. Yunus won the 2006 Nobel Peace Prize for becoming being the father of microfinance. And I was looking at how financial services could unlock the potential of clean energy. I was learning about how it could be used to unlock the potential of poor and low-income individuals and families. Mm -hmm. And then I was seeing how the financial system could really cause a global recession, could cause people to lose their wealth and their homes and hurt people. So I kind of fell into looking at how financial services is impacting people in Rhode Island and the need for access to credit, not just for energy efficiency, but for security deposit in an apartment, immigration expenses, emergencies, buying a car, all the different things that we now provide loans for. Interesting. Most people wouldn't follow through and say, well, I'm going to be the one that solved this problem, so that's really cool. So what is it about Rhode Island in particular that made it seem like the right place? Is it just because you were here, or are we special? Yeah, I mean, as a student at Brown, that did open a lot of doors for me in terms of being able to uh, get support mm -hmm. and advice from business leaders and elected officials. Poverty is very prevalent in Providence. Mm -hmm. We have, at least at the time we got started, we had a, the third highest child poverty rate in the country. Uh, it's a majority minority city. Mm -hmm. It's a very entrepreneurial city and it's very manageable. So it's a great place to get started, to test out a model, to build a lot of relationships. Mm -hmm. The downside is that at some point, the size becomes an issue. The market's not that big. Thank There's you. only so much wealth to tap as a nonprofit. And so we then began expanding to other states. I don't, for instance, if I had gone back to Los Angeles, I don't really know where I would have started because it's just so big and overwhelming. Mm, that is one of the great things about Providence is it does feel manageable. Yes, it was very manageable and it didn't take a lot to get started. It's amazing because I wouldn't think that starting a bank or a financial institution, you would say, it wouldn't take a lot to get started. We don't really know anything about it. It's a very opaque kind of situation, right, for the average person. Yeah, I mean, so we're not a bank or credit right. Okay, sorry. We don't, meaning we don't take deposits. Okay. That's a, a whole... It's a whole separate thing. That's a, that's a very long, multi-year process. Okay. I mean, we've been around eight years. It took us a good five years to really figure out our business model. Mm. But when I got started, I was still working on my master's, we were all volunteer. I graduated and even then, we, were, we didn't have any full-time people until we'd been around for like eight months. Wow. They were AmeriCorps Vistas. So I think our, our expenses our first year were 30,000. It was very, wow. it was fairly easy to get started to raise that money. Then mm -hmm. obviously as we 
got a better sense of our model. We had to start hiring more people. Now we're up to a $2 million budget and growing. So has there been any failures or mistakes that you might be able to share about the process? Yeah. Initially, we wanted to do small micro-business lending for poor and low-income Rhode Islanders mm -hmm. and because that's what microfinance typically looks like or almost always looks like in the mm -hmm. international context. There were a couple of problems with that. One is that uh, it's a lot harder to underwrite a loan for a startup micro-business than it is a loan for a security deposit because oh. with the business loan, particularly if the client is very low income, their ability to afford the loan depends upon the success of the business. In other words, absent an increase in income because the business is meeting projections, they can't afford the payments. And investing in startup businesses in general is risky, right. but typically the entrepreneur has some cash flow or cash saved up. Uh, so that was just very difficult to do. Also, when you look at the percentage of the population that is entrepreneurial, has an idea that's ready to bring to market, hears about us, and can get approved by us, it's a needle in the haystack. And it was very hard to source customers. Hmm. So as we started to get more into personal lending, we realized that we're a lot more comfortable underwriting these loans because we're just looking at their current income and current expenses, and can they afford it? Mm -hmm. And then almost everyone at some point needs small credit. Right. People with higher, better credit, more income, Every time they swipe a credit card, that you're borrowing that money. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have access to a credit card and you need you run short on food for a month, you have no way to buy it unless someone can provide you access to credit. So there was a huge opportunity there for impact. There's a very large predatory industry that we can easily compete against. It's a lot easier to get customers. In short, uh, our the our business loan portfolio had a 25% default rate. Our um, overall portfolio was 4.5. Okay, so I see the difference. <laughs> yeah, but we did it early. It didn't kill us. Right. And we, and we stopped soon enough. So what types of businesses were you interested in with that kind of micro-loan model? I mean, in theory, typically in the U.S., this would be for... Because these loans were up to $5,000. They okay. were very small. It would be your cleaning business, your food cart, your landscaper, your contractor. Okay. Businesses like that. Okay. But, you know, again, it's hard to find those businesses. They're hard to succeed at. Sometimes $5,000 doesn't get you anywhere near what you need. Right. But a bank's not going to do it. Okay. So it would be like it's a small startup. I need the food truck or I need a bunch of food or I need the tools or something yeah, like that. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. And it seems like almost everyone needs food, transportation, and a place to live. Exactly. Okay. How have you gone about measuring impact? Do you have stories of people? Are you interviewing and following up with people? Or is it more just they paid it off and goodbye? Is there like a interaction that's happening? Yeah, so all of our clients fill out a standard intake survey of about 20 questions mm -hmm. that we administer at intake, and then at 6 and 12 months post-intake, we pull credit for people who get our, we also do financial coaching, so we do credit pools there, as well as with borrowers. Uh, and with the credit report, we're able to also look at debt to income and a couple other metrics like that. We're also doing a randomized control trial of our financial coaching. 
So there we're really drilling down on family finances and health. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at things like food security, access to primary care, general health and wellness. Uh, and then certainly repayment rate is an important metric that we track for business and impact purposes. It's easy to assume that if someone defaulted on the loan, then they're not doing better than they did, were when you gave them the loan. Right. Um, so, and then we also collect stories. So mm -hmm. we were able to get a lot of different data from different sources. Mm -hmm. So that my next question was about the financial education. What does that look like? And is there a long-term plan to put yourself out of business? So the, the financial coaching is all one-on-one. -on -one. Okay. Uh, it's a curriculum we developed in-house and have refined over six years. Uh, I should say it's one-on-one, -on -one, but it's not only in person. We are we have an increasingly uh, better digital platform, so mm -hmm. we can do coaching electronically. Okay. And it covers the gamut of financial and health topics. So healthy eating on a budget, primary care access, uh, building a budget, looking at your credit, managing your debt. Mm -hmm. banking usage and, and the like. In terms of putting ourselves out of business, I mean, that would be nice, but <laughs> one out of three Americans <laughs> couldn't come up with a month of expenses in an emergency, so the scale of the problem is much larger than we could ever get to. So right. unfortunately, I don't think that's going to be the case. You know, I, in an ideal world, all of our clients would build their credit and then be get a loan at a credit union because our rates aren't zero. They're higher than what you'd get if you had good credit. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is that banks and credit unions don't like to do loans as small as we do, that there are other barriers to access like income and immigration status or language. Uh, so we're trying to graduate people to other things, but I, it also takes time to build your credit. So we, we expect people, and a lot of times people could get a loan at a light, slightly lower rate but choose us because they, they like us and are comfortable. That's nice. What, as far as the big picture, what do you see as, you know, culturally and systemically changes that could help reduce the problem of predatory lending and the cycle of, you know, needing to seek out loans? So certainly reforming the lending laws is important and that's something that at the state level we've tried to do in Rhode Island and it hasn't worked. Hmm. It's simply we would just try to cap the interest rates at 36% instead of 261. That hasn't gone anywhere. Oh. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau at the federal level will soon be putting out some regulations, uh, proposed regulations for reining in some of the practices of payday lenders. But ultimately the reason why people need $300 is because they don't make enough money and their expenses are too high. Mm -hmm. And that's a function of a lack of affordable housing, mm -hmm. rising food costs, all of this relative to stagnant wages. Right. And a very minuscule, minuscule and evaporating social safety net. Mm -hmm. so ultimately, that's the thing. I mean, we can help someone build credit and build a budget, but if they're getting paid seven bucks an hour and their house, their rent takes up 50% of their income, there's not much you can do. Right. What is the argument for these 237% interest rates? Sorry, I'm misquoting the number, but yeah. what is well, the argument for that? I mean, simply put that it's very expensive for them to do these loans, the mm -hmm. losses are high, they're very small, the margins are tight, and that's what they need to charge to be profitable. 
that's true to a point. I mean, the way that they do lending does require high interest rates. Mm -hmm. You can do it at a much lower rate if you want to, but you have to think. Their business model is very much, I open up a branch, you walk into the branch, as long as you prove you have a pulse, a bank account, and income, you can get a loan. Uh, for us, we actually care if you can afford the loan, if you need the loan, um, and that's how we can charge lower rates. But the argument fundamentally is that, look, banks and credit unions don't want to do this, uh, our clients can't access, this population can't access credit cards, but they still need access to credit. And so we're providing a service no one else will do at a price the market will bear. Okay. Is this... I don't want to blame capitalism for everything, but is this part of having a class system and the, you know, the distribution of wealth? Is it just that the natural result of that? Or is there some purposeful creation of people who can't get credit? Well, the credit's good at measuring whether or not in the past you've paid back debts. What it's not good at measuring is why. Mm. So you can fall behind on debt either because you don't honor debts or because you can't afford to honor a particular debt. And that can be either because you were irresponsible in racking it up or because you were just trying to make ends meet and you lost your job in the recession or you got sick. And the challenge is to suss that out. The FICO score doesn't care. The FICO score doesn't care if you fell behind because you had cancer. And then when you got better, you got on a payment plan. That doesn't really get reflected in your FICO score. So the FICO score is good for people who are stable and bad for people who aren't. And as a lender, our job is to try to figure out of those who are, have poor credit, is it because of things outside their control or is it because of, you know, irresponsibility effectively? Mm. And that's why we don't just go off the credit score. Okay. Broader structural issues, yeah, I mean, rising income inequality leads to a, a situation where people, the have-nots, don't have enough to, to get by, uh, and then they have to go to places that are very expensive, the cost of being poor, the poverty tax. Right. The fact that if you or I want to borrow, we swipe a credit card and maybe we pay 20% or we pay it off in one month and pay no interest. If I'm poor and I need that same amount, I'm going to pay hundreds of dollars. Or right. if I want to cash my check, I have $100, I'm going to pay $3 to the check casher because the bank won't clear the check fast enough for it to be useful to me. Right. So what is next for you, you know, kind of looking ahead? What are some goals or ideas that you're going to put into place next? Yeah, so our primary area of focus right now is getting to a place where all of our operating expenses are covered from interest income on our loan portfolio. Mm -hmm. Right now, that's only about 10 to 15%, okay. and the rest is grants and donations. Mm. Our goal is to get to 100% by 2021, but it requires that we have $120 million in loans outstanding to our borrowers compared to $1.8 million right now. Wow. So it's a very large growth curve between now and 2021. Mm -hmm. And what are the... You know, a few of the basic steps that would make that happen is that moving to different states or just more 
you know, getting as many people as possible in Rhode Island. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the reasons why we moved to Florida, because it's a 20x the market of Rhode right. Island. And we'll probably expand either California or Texas. Um, it's also a function of investing a lot in our back-end capacity, our personnel, and marketing, and technology, and accounting. All the things we need to be able to handle that increased volume while also increasing our operational efficiency. How do you market? We get a lot of referrals from just Google searches. We have good search engine optimization. Um, word of mouth. A lot of community partner referrals, including United Way 211, which is their helpline. Oh, yes. And then community partners, like social service agencies and the like. And then we do some paid advertising, namely Facebook and Google AdWords. Okay. So it's pretty grassroots kind of yeah. word of mouth and talking to people. And you're doing... Um, Bilingual or multilingual? Everything is English and Spanish, yes. Okay. So, my next question is, if people would like to learn more about this and get in touch, can you tell us a little bit about how to do that? So people can work with us in four ways. Okay. One, they can be clients, which means they can do financial and health coaching, or mm -hmm. they can get a loan, or both. They can donate, and then they can also invest in us. And an investment in us means a loan to the organization that we pay interest on, and then we use that to make loans to our clients. Our website talks about all those different things. So our website, the shortest version of it is www.goodfund.us. Okay. Um, so goodfund.us. Um, and then pe people can contact me, 401-339-5437. Uh, very brave of you. Yeah, well, <laughs> why not? <laughs> right. And finally, what else is inspiring you right now to keep going? Doing a startup, busy, lots going on. Yeah, well, yeah, we've been around eight years, so I think we're out of the startup phase okay. finally. But, <laughs> well, I mean, certainly the political situation, the federal level, is making our work more important, particularly because, A, we don't have a partner in the federal government mm -hmm. in working to uplift the poor. Uh, and there's a lot going on, particularly in, in terms of anti-immigrant sentiment that's actively harming those that we serve. Mm -hmm. So we're doing a lot more work on the immigration loan front, and we're just recognizing that people are scared and concerned, and the need for our services is greater than ever, and we're trying to, to rise up to meet that, that demand. I love that it's a tangible service. There's just something so real about seeing the problem and providing something tangible. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty straightforward thing that someone needs to move into an apartment, they can afford the monthly rent, but they can't afford the security deposit, and we provide a loan for that. You know, the caveat is that a loan can only go so far. Mm -hmm. Like I said, Ultimately, if someone, if there's no upward mobility in jobs or we have no social safety net, our work on its own isn't enough. Right. So if you think about a world in which there, are, there is a good social safety net, jobs are being created, and we're providing credit building services and coaching and, and loans for different investments in individuals and families, then we're talking about a situation in which we can really make a dent in poverty. Right now, because of the situation um, federally, 
it feels like in many ways we're preventing people from backsliding, and then we're doing a lot to move them forward, but they're stuck by expensive housing, rising utility bills, rising health bills, mm -hmm. and stagnant wages. Yeah. Well, good luck. Thank you. <laughs> Any final words that you'd like to offer the humanity? <laughs> Anything I want to offer humanity? Well, uh, I think that with the craziness of the Trump administration, it can be uh, very easy to feel uh, overwhelmed and deflated. Mm -hmm. And the best thing I can recommend is just continuing to do the little things that you already do to resist, mm -hmm. because rolling over is really an option. We've seen in history many times what happens when people roll over in the face of um, hate. Mm -hmm. And so continuing to do things, recognizing that the scope of the problem is larger than what any one person can handle, but at the same time that every loan we make for someone to become a citizen, that's a person who's not going to be deported, who can vote their conscience, vote for people who are going to respect minorities and, and the like. Mm -hmm. uh, so we all can be doing something like that in our own daily lives, and I think we're kind of called upon it these days. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us, and thank you for doing this important work. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity.